Welcome to our podcast, an attorney and an accountant walk into a bar. I'm John, I'm the attorney, and my buddy, Kent, and I'm the accountant. All right. And today, we're going to bring you a great topic, one of my favorite subjects for building wealth, and that's a 1031 exchange. I think that's the OG of wealth planning techniques. All right, let's get to it. to a bar. I'm your host, Kent, and I am the CPA in this matter. And I have my business partner jingling his ice cubes there, um, attorney John Manzano. Say hi, John. Hi, guys. So we specialize in estate planning, business, civil litigation, and all that kind of fun stuff. We, temp- we typically serve business owners, high net worth family groups, entrepreneurs. And uh, tonight we're here to shoot the shit. And this is after hours. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff that we go through and, but we always have to start it off with a libation. So tonight I'm drinking a, a Japanese whiskey, a Centauri. I think it's very smooth. John, what do you got? I have myself a glass of Blanton's here. I'm not sure exactly what version it is, but it's outstanding. Incredibly smooth. Um, that one actually is a single barrel that a blended barrel that I got um, back in the East coast uh, a package shop is what they're called back there was couldn't get a hold of it. So they just bought an entire barrel and then they had uh, a custom pouring into bottles. So I was lucky enough to grab a few. So that is a, that is a wonderful glass. Well, I hope you have more than that because I'm drinking it rather rapidly. That's, it's all good. That's, that's what it's here for to be drinking. All right. And uh, t- man, you know what? We've been going through a lot recently with, uh, 1031 exchanges, you know, I, I, I deal with it a lot from a tax perspective. I don't think I've ever really sat down with an attorney to talk about what I think is like the OG of tax planning tools for building wealth. And, you know, it got its humble start um, in 1921, and then it got codified in 1954. And then you have that, um, this I'm going to talk about some legal jargon, but it's that the a starker v. United States that happened in the 70s, and that kind of really set off its other nomenclature or other name known as the Starker Exchange. And the 1031 Exchange, I've found, is really a tool that's not really talked about in terms of how to build and preserve wealth. Indeed. In fact, it's such a powerful tool, and it's available to people at all levels, right? That's one of the most interesting things. Like, <clears throat> if you recall, we had a client get in touch with us the other day and, and wanted to talk about how they could minimize their taxes. And they were adamant, if you recall, that they couldn't do a 1031 exchange. They, they mm-hmm. just told us, oh, but that's out. And they had all the reasons that it, w- it wouldn't work for them. And the fact of the matter was they were completely wrong about that because they were just reading what they found on the Internet, and, you know, those kind of banal explanations that you get when you look up 1031 exchange. And they didn't realize that while – no, they couldn't exchange the property the way it was situated, that we could have made alterations to the way it was situated. We could have created entities and transferred the property into certain entities and made the exchange possible for them. And that's the sort of thing that I think it really helps to be a professional or go to a professional about so that you can get these nuanced answers and not just the sort of thing you get from the Internet. So it's a a great tool, and I think it works for 
not just wealthy family groups, but it can actually work for just mom and pop that have an investment property or even that might want to do something with their home if they're they're out of exemptions or they, they have a significant capital gain that can be eliminated or reduced. You know, it's interesting. It's it's taken a lot of forms and the most recent form, the like kind exchange after the Tax Cut Jobs Act really kind of uh, whittled it down to just real property. Like prior to that, you know, people were 1031 exchanging like kind business property, like airplanes, things like that. But um, uh, in this day and age, right, we're talking to 2023 and beyond, you know, it's, it's been really real, whittled down to just real estate. But even then, that's probably the largest holding of at least American wealth in, in the country. And there's a really, you know, when people think, oh, tax deferred exchanges, what, for those that aren't quite aware, everyone do their, do their Google or AI searches, is that 1031 exchanges allow for the deferral of capital gains on real property. And if done right, with proper estate planning, which I'd love to chat with you about, you can essentially do that infinitum because if, with proper estate planning, that property goes into um, uh, a proper estate plan or a trust, and then you get it, you get the valuation of a step up in basis. So there's potentiality that there will never be a capital gains event on that property. It really is remarkable how using the tools that are available to us, like a 1031 exchange or the other tools that you mentioned, like trusts, gifting, that sort of thing, really can be used to avoid heavy-duty taxes, especially in the capital gains front, but also things like estate taxes and things like that with proper planning. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't aren't aware of these tools. They're primarily tools of the wealthy because the wealthy have the means to employ persons such as yourself and myself to do these sorts of plans for them. But I think today, especially with the advent of the internet and all the information out there, that if people can't afford a professional to do that sort of high-level planning for them, if they really wanted to spend some time and effort reading about these things and looking at all the, the various blog posts and things like that that are out there, they could probably do some pretty effective planning on their own. It's just, you have to put the legwork into it. You know, that's, that's true. I think the knowledge gap that we'll find that the internet has brought is that it gives people um, a good baseline to have a discussion with a professional. In fact, I really like it when potential clients or clients come in and say, I researched this. Now there's, that's a difference than saying the internet told me I can do this. <laughs> um, it's a different conversation when they say, Hey, this is an option that I researched. What do you think? And some, and usually there's a few pathways from a tax perspective to do that type of planning. And as you know, it's really key. One of the key components of a 1031 exchange is having a qualified intermediary. So those that don't know that is that part of part of the way to make this work. Um, I'll break it down in some layman terms. Is that you can never actually touch the money. So you have a piece of investment real estate that gets sold, and that. Uh, that real estate goes through a closing and escrow. That money can't go into the seller's account. It has to go be held with a qualified intermediary. And I'm talking about a forward exchange. And that's the most simplistic and most common type of exchange where it goes with a qualified intermediary. And within a certain parameter of days, the total amount being 180, they have to then roll it into another, uh, other, another investment. There's some calculations on tax basis and boot. Um, and if I have too many to drink, I'll get into the nitty gritty of it. But for the most part, you get to roll 
all the basis and the gain into a new property. And I think the most valuable piece of it is the compounding effect of that cash, right? Instead of the gain being held at the governmental level, right? You get to retain it for the use of that private individual and the compounding effect of that gain over that first, second, third, fourth, fifth property is quite exponential in terms of wealth building. Well, exactly. But, you know, you kind of made me think of something there as you explained that to me. There's, there's a lot of terms that we're throwing out and a lot of talk that we're about 1031 exchanges where we're really not maybe breaking it down to the basics for someone who maybe is new to this, right? So I think one of the important things to understand is what is what do you mean 1031 exchange? What is an exchange? What's a like-kind exchange? Well, the idea is that I've got a piece of real estate and I'm going to trade it to someone else. And remember, it cannot be your personal residence, so that's exempted. Okay, right. you're right. But let's talk about a piece of, well, it can be, but that's, well, a, that's another story, right? <laughs> special special <laughs> use there's, cases, there's correct. There's ways that we can get around that, but barring that, yeah, we're talking about investment property primarily, right? So let's say you've got a duplex, you've got a, an apartment building, you've got even a piece of land that's something that you're using to generate income or as part of a business holding, right? The, the, on the fundamental level, we're talking about an exchange, meaning that you might go out there with your piece of land and trade it mm-hmm. to someone else with another piece of land or the piece of real estate. And then you trade it and exchange it, right? And then there's a like-kind exchange. But that's not very practical, right? Who's going to – let's say I have an apartment building and I want to buy a bigger apartment building. Well, who am I going to find that wants to trade, right? That's that's not practical. So – we work around that with what's called a forward exchange, which is now instead of trading the property, we bring in an intermediary to hold the cash. So you sell the property, but you never take possession of the cash because at the second you take possession of the cash, the IRS says, nope, that's income. You're done. There's no exchange. You're, you're out. Yeah. But what you do is the intermediary comes in and the cash goes to the intermediary in a form of a trust, right? So the Intermediate is holding it for you. And then you have to go out and identify within, you know, the statutory time periods, the property that you want. And then you have the intermediary buy it for you with the money that came out of the the first sale, right? So mm-hmm. that's what you're referring to in a forward exchange, which is the most basic form of an exchange. So I think, you know, that I think that explanation sort of helps people understand that why we're why do we have this intermediary? What's the whole point of this? It's it's interesting to me. So going through undergraduate in accounting, you know, when I took my tax class, the best thing they ever did for me was the professor there, ex Anderson guy, um, gave me a set of facts and was like, complete this tax return, right? And that really wet my whistle, as it were, to figuring out all these numbers and how they filled out this form. Now, I know it's not exciting to you. You're not jittering in your seat, but it's exciting to me because I realized that it's really an interpretation of facts. Now, that is something that attorneys think about. You think about a set of facts and how do you present them. And for me, there's a very, very thick set of rules, right, that we have to follow. Internal Revenue Code, Treasury Regulations, a little bit more rigid than, um, than interpretations of case law. But in, in so doing, what I think schools are missing is 
to attract people to the field. So this is me making my pitch to have more accountants join, join the ranks, is that there's so much opportunity in the gray of tax planning. Because I always tell folks the difference between tax evasion and tax planning is when you speak to your accountant. Because if you do it after, it's too bad. You did it. But if you had a thought in your head and you talk to your accountant and they're like, hey, you know what? Let's take a look at the action that you choose to take and what your desired outcome is. You can plan potentially around it. And I think that aspect of how tax planning can be applied to generational wealth building is not even discussed in schools. Well, indeed. And, and I think you make a tremendous point. And it, it's to drive that point home, it's like really... It's the difference between prison and a million acres, right? Yeah. Because if you try and take deductions after the fact that you shouldn't be taking, that's evasion, Yep. which can be criminal. But if you have your CPA planned up for you ahead of time and, and your attorney, you just get to not pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty big difference. And I have to honestly tell you too, Ken, I mean, I started out in business school in accounting. That, wow. was, that was what I, I started as, yeah. And it didn't last very long because I thought you guys were the most boring weirdos <laughs> with your debits and credits. And yeah. and then, of course, yeah. my accounting teacher wasn't so, um, let's say, beneficial as your accounting teacher because my first accounting teacher was like, if you want to be an accountant, you're going to work 14 hours a day, every day, seven days a week. And then when tax time comes, you'll be working 24 hours a day and you'll never see the light of day ever. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't that the same for attorneys? First year attorneys with their charge hour goals? They didn't tell us that. Oh, okay. Got it. They, they told us we were going to have a Ferrari in the keys of the executive washroom <laughs> and we were going to be like L.A. law. We were going to be like sexy lawyers with, you know, really nice suits and sexy clients. But with, that didn't happen either. The jack of all trades attorneys. I love the shows where one attorney one minute's doing family law and all of a sudden they're in like federal court litigation. Oh yeah. And doing this, you know, just all through one person. And then negotiating a corporate buyout the next minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happens with accountants too. It it it, it when I get asked, what do you do? And I, I say I'm an accountant. Well one, they automatically ask me tax questions, but it doesn't necessitate that I could be in audit, right? or managerial accounting or doing governmental accounting. And I have no idea what's going on with tax. Now, the easy part is that I am a tax accountant. And so um, it makes me the most popular kid in school um, and the most popular kid around, right around tax season. So I got all the friends out of the woodwork. Hey, Ken, how you been? Great. (laughs) (laughs) What's your question? I owe too many taxes. That's my question. (laughs) Fix it. (laughs) <laughs> and it's also about context of conversation, too, because it's about when you have that conversation. They go, oh, they usually, they usually call after the year is done. The most important conversation you have with your accountant is prior to the end of the year, because that's when all the last minute planning, retirement planning kind of comes in, pre-tax um, investments to kind of understand what options there are for ordering tax. But then 1031 exchanges um, have been around for quite some time. Now, its iteration has evolved since the 1920s to legislation in 1954 and uh, most recently in the 2017 Tax Cut Jobs Act. But as a generational wealth building tool, I, I, I have to estimate that it saved folks 
billions of dollars, billions of dollars, because transactions that you and I are part of are in the millions. And we see a small microcosm of what's going on out there. Uh, and every time a client defers that gain, you have exponential return on the equity, especially here in Southern California. Think about over the last, since the 50s, what the increase in um, land wealth has been, the price of property from the 50s till now in houses that were selling for $30,000, $60,000 or in the millions. And so that if that gain has been deferred, that's just generational wealth that could be transferred on to the next generation. The, the next just conversation should be around succession planning because 1031s is just we'll call it like the gateway, the gateway to proper succession planning, right? I think that there's also another part of planning around those sorts of transactions that we, we do as well that often get overlooked, and that is how do you avoid reassessment under Proposition 13? Mm. And that can be devastating. Like, for instance, we just, we're working on a transaction now in uh, Compton where the property is worth probably $100 million, and they have an option to acquire this property There's, and it's owned by a partnership, right? So if they just bought the property and in a normal transaction, they're going their property taxes are going to go up on the order of a million dollars a year. Yeah. But if they instead buy the partnership interests, there's no change in the tax. That's right. So just something subtle like that can make the difference in a million dollars a year makes the difference between a profitable business and one that sits in the toilet. You know, what you just said there, and it sparked a, a thought in my head about a conversation we recently had with a client, a great client of ours, and the distinction between the types of taxes. Most people think income tax. That's your W-2, that's your income coming in. Um, but we had to recently explain to a client, I think you're, you're around, about estate tax, right. which is separate. And then capital, and gains, capital tax, gains tax and real estate taxes and property tax and yeah. sales tax. But in this case, the idea that, oh, if I have a step up in basis from deferral or, or a step up in basis for to reduce the capital gain, that without proper estate planning, that doesn't mitigate the total taxable estate. So it was a it was kind of a rude awakening for them to understand that. Wait a minute. I can even though. I don't have a capital gains tax. There's potential liability, a significant one for estate tax. Right. And, you know, I think our, our call it our, our society or our, our American culture started off having a fit that resulted in the Tea Party over just, you know, any level of tax. Now we're taxed every which way. Talk at the pump, right, the gas station here, um, you know, use tax. And, you know, it, it, what I love about it, it, it spells for me, as an accountant, tax accountant, job security. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Which again is my second pitch for up and coming bright young folks to think about accounting as occupation. As long as there's taxes, right? Especially tax accounts, we're in business. Um, and these strategies, however they evolve, whether it's a 1031 exchange or, um, more recent qualified opportunity zones, which offer some level of, of capital gain deferral under 1400 Z. It is, it's, I think a very fertile area for a continued planning and the tighter things get, um, in legislation, the more we have to plan around, the more creative we have to get. And, um, even, even using 
uh, entities to as blocker corps to mitigate risk. We recently did that with a client. Right. Yeah, and that's essential too. And you know, one of the key th takeaways I think that people should consider, especially from like the conversation we're having here, is look, if you go to a qualified professional, someone that really specializes in tax planning, right? And I'm not talking about trying to steer people to us because, you know, quite honestly, we're, we're pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure, yeah, honestly, that we need money more business than we've got at the moment. But so for anybody else out there uh, and going to other professionals, right? The thing I love about what I do as an attorney is, yes, I'm very expensive, but I can guarantee you one thing. I will save you way more money by orders of magnitude, maybe several orders of magnitude, than what I cost. And I might be really expensive, but it's nothing compared to what I'm going to save you. And that's not a lot of other lawyers can say that. You know, if, if listeners here are interested, thought of a topic, you know, it's, it's always interesting because I always tell clients, um, not all accountants or attorneys are created equal. Oh, that's uh, for sure. Maybe a potential topic, people leave comments or notes for us, of how to vet appropriate professionals for what you're trying to transact because I'm not the best at everything. There's things that I'm very, um, very good at and I'm able to discuss with clients specifically about my areas of expertise such as yourself, right? You don't practice all kinds of law and I don't, I don't do all kinds of tax planning. Um, nor, nor would I care to. Right, right. <laughs> so very sophisticated M&A transactions, I definitely refer out and it's not only for myself but the protection of potential clients and in their best interest. So, you know, maybe we could have a conversation about what to look for in your professional because and what questions to ask, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like what 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 answers are you looking for? Because you taught me a very valuable lesson recently uh, when we had a call for due diligence for a client that you did um, and got all the answers you were expecting because you had the detailed information and you read through the cases. And before we made that call, you had an expectation of an answer because you had an interpretation of it. And I found it very informative and very helpful in the fact that you're like, Kent, I'm not going to call them until I have the answer. I know what's actually going on. And their response was very informative in terms of us assessing their um, workability with us and our client going forward, you know, their trustworthiness um, in, in transacting this deal and how they might interact with us going forward. That brings up a, a thought. And that is one that I learned in cross-examination of that? witnesses. Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. And the reason for that is, right, that if, if you're, when this is when you're vetting someone, yeah. especially, you can, I, you can ask me a question and I could feed you a line of baloney. Yeah. And if you're just an amateur, you're going to go, oh, that guy sounds really smart. He, he really knows what he's doing. And I just made up some shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. But if you knew the answer and you ask the question and I give you the bullshit, you're going to be, oh, this guy's bullshit. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So knowing the answer ahead of time, that, that's, I think, and again, we're getting into another, well, isn't that another, another topic. But, <laughs> but isn't that another area where uh, the right professionals, your accountant, your attorney can serve a very, I think, a very vital role in doing due diligence you know, some of our clients look at investments and we've really been a part of, uh, had the opportunity and been very lucky to be asked by our, 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 um, our, our clients and family groups 
to help them with the due diligence because the lens that we look at it under is very specific and very technical. And so they may think of it as the deal, the feeling, who they're working with. You know, they usually make assessments on the you know, geographic area and the opportunity because they, they bring in business expertise. Right. And to me, the numbers talk to me. Recently, we had a client that was like, I'm going to get into a specialized set of businesses. And I said, great. All I need is a set of financials, general ledger, tax returns that all tie together. And as soon as I took a look at that, the potential seller was like, ah, oh, we made $3 million a year. It's good. That year it was awesome. You know, we have an awesome net. I'm taking, I'm taking a look at the financials, which don't tie to the tax returns, but both show an entirely different story. And so when I piece those things together, the numbers tell me what's really happening from an economic standpoint. And what do you look at from a legal standpoint? That is a great question. In fact, you know, that's a really, really important function that we serve is due diligence. And you, you pointed out the numbers, right? The legal due diligence is so important and people, and so almost always overlooked. The things that I find out when we start asking the right questions about some of these people that our clients want to get in bed with, it's staggering. It's really staggering. It's like, you know, who are you when you're getting when you're going to go into an investment? Is someone researching all the lawsuits that the people around this investment are involved with? Is someone looking into the operating agreements for the various businesses that are involved and? seeing who the managers are and checking those people out and doing that kind of legal due diligence, looking into the, the operating agreements to make sure that the people even have the power to accept your money without a vote or without approval from someone else. Mm -hmm. These are the sorts of things that, you know, the lawyer needs to do for you when you're no, no, I'm not talking about, you know, buying McDonald's stock, right? I'm talking <laughs> about getting into, Oh, I'm going to invest with this other company. I'm going to own a property with them. And then we're going to have, you know, money come out of it. Or I'm going to buy into a warehouse or I'm going to buy into a grocery store business. I'm going to go into business with someone, essentially, maybe just as an investor. The amount of due diligence required to be to make that investment safe, because there's enough risk in the world right. business without getting into bed with a charlatan or getting into bed in a situation where legally you may have no recourse if you want to get your money back or if the deal goes south, right? So that is a function that is really, really important for both legal and accounting. And I want to reiterate, and hopefully you agree too, that this is not some uh, magical tool of the ultra wealthy. You know, there are plenty of excellent attorneys, excellent accountants, including ourselves. I wouldn't say that as a firm, we serve only the ultra wealthy. We, I, I think what we do and how we approach things, just like you said recently, is that whatever you invest with us, as long as you have that rapport with us, right, and you can trust our brand or, or our firm, that we can almost guarantee that historically for our clients, they've gotten way more value they invested in. And, and maybe like a $10,000 retainer sounds crazy or a lot relative to certain deals. But if that saved that individual from losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, which has happened, or millions of dollars, which has happened, you know, that is excellent. We'll call it CYA, right, for somebody to invest in their professional. So then it goes back to the key of getting the right professionals on your team. But I want to, want to make sure that people know it's not out of reach 
for most people. It's just, it's finding the right professionals, trusting them and asking the right questions to understand that they have the capacity to do due diligence because not all professionals, right? You, you are uh, an I, I'm not saying that we have so many feathers in our caps, but because of our, um, our professional certifications and the fact that you and I both got our MBAs, I think to a certain extent signifies that we have a curiosity that is beyond just our specialty. And that goes, and, and you and I, you know, personally have curiosities into different things. We like to explore and gain knowledge and that informs our decision with clients. It informs how we give them advice. It informs, you know, um, the perspective that we give because not only are we professionals with a very narrow or specific specialty, we also are um, explorers of the world. So we bring with us a lot of experience that we've had um, from all the past businesses that we've started, entrepreneurs, right? Being entrepreneurs ourselves, we bring that to the table. And I think that gives color to everything that we're giving to our clients. Absolutely. And that's, you know, not the sort of experience you get from going to law school either. It's an experience you get from being a lawyer in business, doing business for years and years. And that's why you pay more for an old guy like me than you do for the young buck out of law school. True. The only caveat I'd say to that, because you know I'm in, in an interesting position in my life as I as I get older, right? And I and I get more experience. You know, age doesn't predicate, and we know a couple of attorneys. Uh, age, <laughs> we know a lot of attorneys uh, that are age, old and awful. <laughs> yeah, age does not predicate quality. No, you know? but experience does, and I think that That's would be a, a point if you're going to vet someone. I think, and again, this is a, another topic, right? But that's a good point. One of the things maybe you want to look at is what's this guy's experience and is his experience real experience? Because experiencing the same thing every year is one year of experience, even if you've done it 10 years in a row. That's a good point. I mean, you're saying because I've been through the ringer that, Oh yeah. Uh, you, we've both been through the ringer. Yeah. My friend. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm better for it. Several times over. <laughs> we call that the silver lining, John, the silver lining, damn it. But, um, but yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to explore it. This is something else about um, outside of 1031 exchanges. It's about how about making money in any business. I, I think that we've covered this maybe on the first podcast about how I firmly believe that our clients come from all walks of life and they make money in all the strangest ways that I've ever seen. Some make Petri dishes or a urine, you know, urine containers and they gross in the multi-millions of dollars. It's right? amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not usually, it's, it's funny, it's usually not the sexy things that, that make money, but it is, uh, and I, where I'm going with this is for any young folks or any folks that are looking at career changes, especially with COVID and working from home and all those things, um, I always, I say not preach, but I advise that don't find out what makes money. Find out what you would rather do if no one paid you for it. And then start to explore that because there's probably an opportunity to make money. And with that, I'm going to do a, probably an interesting segue because I, I honestly just really want to hear you, what you have to say about it. Because you are a man that doesn't really just explore like toe in the water of things. You like to, uh, as long as I've known you, John, you, when you get into something, you become um, obsessed in a good way. <laughs> but obsessed in a way where I get to live vicariously through the knowledge that you're gaining as long as I'm not, you know, preoccupied, of course. Uh, but so one of those key areas recently is I'd love to hear to date, and we, we can follow up on this at, on on later podcasts if there's interest. 
definitely on my side, fungi. Oh, fungi. Tell me about your exploration into fungi. My, my exploration into the mycelium world. I got it. Well, first of all, I want to predicate this, that my interest in mushrooms, as it were, is not of the magical type. Okay. It's the culinary type that I'm interested in. And it's an interesting point is that the most of the literature that you wade through in the examination of the mycelium world has to do with the magic type. Uh-huh. <laughs> in fact, you can't seem to get away from it. <laughs> but uh, it's a very fascinating subject, and I would love to talk about it at some point. Okay. You know, <clears throat> what was your favorite hobby, John, growing up that ended up informing the way you created your career? Uh, I'm going to ask that in in a way where, uh, and let me ask you, let me tell you my story. So the reason I got into accounting was because my parents came to the U.S., immigrants, started a business, and um, my parents liked cooking. We cooked all kinds of food, and for, for not a, I don't think it's a cliche per se, but my parents opened a restaurant, an Asian restaurant, um, and we got into cooking. And I realized at some point that one of the strengths that my parents had were client service and creating a great menu and great environment for folks. But where they were weaker was on the financial management side, you know, understanding, you know, profitability, understanding those things. And there's it, it kind of laid a seed in me that I wanted to potentially be something along the lines of understanding numbers. Right. So that's that's the basic level of it. And then as I got into school, and I understood what, you know, what occupations were out there. I think I was subconsciously drawn to accounting. You know, um, I've been fortunate enough to find an area of expertise or area of specialty that I've stuck with my entire career. Um, I know that you have as well, but you've explored many things. So I guess to rephrase the question is, how did you get into law, John? Well, I think you know the answer to that question. That's because my parents forced me to be go to law school. <laughs> Period. End way. of discussion. <laughs> now, that being said. How do you feel about it now? How does that tie together with all of my weird hobbies and all that sort of thing? Well, I think the common thread to my weird hobbies is entrepreneurship. Hmm. And that is that I've always wanted my weird hobbies to be some sort of a business, right? And... I've turned many of my weird hobbies into some sort of a business. One of them was incredibly successful until COVID took it out. But the point of the matter was having the legal experience, having been to law school, representing clients alongside doing this, right? Because that's how I made the real money. Shepherding all these businesses gives me tremendous insight into how the law is important to business and how it's essential part of business, not only to understanding how to structure the business, but how to protect the business. That's the important thing. That's the thing so many people miss out on. And that is you really have two choices when it comes down to it. You can see a lawyer, a good lawyer, mm -hmm. when you're starting your business, and it shouldn't cost much to help you structure the business and help you set things up and look at the regulatory environment. And then Continue to use that lawyer throughout the years to make sure you're doing things right. And it will cost you very little. Or you can just blindly plunge into the thing. And most of the time, you'll probably be fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, something goes wrong, it'll cost you everything. And 
you'll be paying the lawyer much, much more. I guess the question is, tech industry aside, you know, the attorney sometimes, depending on how, depending on the individual's age and their and their level of assets. You know, I know myself in younger years, I got my start in entrepreneurship. You know, um, reselling goods to my classmates in grade school. Right, I I'd look at you know what might be the new hot call it toy gadget hobby. So in, in my case in grade school it was hacky sacks. And what I would do is it wasn't just, you know, the pleather hacky sacks. You wanted the hacky sacks that were like handmade yarn. It had good design on it. And so I arbitraged by going to a hobby shop, finding out they had really decent hacky sacks. But the best hacky sack wasn't the hacky sack that was just filled to the brim with beads. You want a little bit of give on it so that when you're doing all the tricks, you know, it's able to have some staying power. And so I went and I um, made a deal with the shopkeep to uh, get these hacky sacks on consignment. And I would like remanufacture them, they pull some of the beads out, and then I resell them at school. Um, and that was a great little gig for a while until everyone else had hacky sacks. So <laughs> I saturated the market. So I had to create a new hot thing, which was super soaker pens. So back in the day, super soaker made a pen. You fill the reservoir with water and you can squirt people with it. And that worked out well until I got in trouble because I was apparently handing out um, you know, weapons, weapons to, <laughs> according, according, according to I'm teachers. I'm sure they didn't all fill them with water either. Yeah. Well, no, you know, they did. We were, we were good kids. We were good kids. There wasn't any like peroxide or anything in there. Ink. Yeah. Or, you know what? Urine. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have that kind of nefarious thought process into our, into our adolescence, you know, into, into high school and, and such. But that was like my foray, foray into entrepreneurship and like figuring out how to, you know, finagle a buck. So that was, that was quite interesting. 